we may have a way to get through a TSA checkpoint without giving up your water. We got this text from Nora. If water in a water bottle is frozen, can I take it through TSA? Now, what she's getting at is, you know, they make you pour out liquids, but they're really saying no liquids. They're not saying no water. And what Nora had done the night before is she'd taken a bottle of water and frozen it. So now it was a solid. It wasn't a liquid anymore. And she was about to go through security. Well, actually, before I got to the line, uh, there was a woman standing there kind of doing the triage. Mm -hmm. And I showed it to her and I was like, do you think I can take this in? And she was like, your ice is fine. And I was like... Awesome. So I just went right through. They did take a look at it. Yeah. You know, but uh, I drank all the water off the ice cube first. And then it was, yeah, it was just a big cylinder of ice in there. Did you get the impression, she said your ice is fine. Do you get the impression this happens a lot, that people bring ice through security? Maybe. Yeah, no, it seemed to be like, oh, whatever, you know. Yeah, I think it maybe happens a lot. It seems strange. It seems like, I mean, that's kind of like a, a technicality that you got through on that your water was in a solid solid state, even though it's still water. It still has all the same properties that it, it will when it's liquid. It's as dangerous as it was before. Maybe more dangerous Maybe more dangerous. you could hit somebody with it. Well, I was thinking place. about it, like, what if you wanted to bring, like, a really big shampoo bottle? Could you freeze it? <laughs> Can you freeze anything? So do you, think, do you think in the future you will be freezing water to go through TSA? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a good tactic because, you know, once you get to the other side, you can't have cold water. All you can have is like random tap water that you find. So I'd, but I'd rather have cold water. So, and now I just feel smart. How did that water taste when you drank it on the plane, knowing that that you snuck it through? It was really the best water. It was the best water ever. Tasted like victory. Mm -hmm. Sweet, sweet victory. Over terrorism. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. On today's show, a Secret Service agent will help us fact check 24. But I think we have uh, Imogen on the line now. Let's just, uh, let's start here. Hello, Imogen. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Pretty good, thanks. So where where are you today, Imogen? I'm actually sitting in Wimbledon at the moment, so I'm talking to you from Wimbledon. Wait, what's going on? Oh, we've got a really exciting match, actually. We're... uh, Nadal is looking like he may perhaps go out. He's down two sets to one against Kyrgios, who was a wild card. I'm so sorry that you have to stop and talk to us while something... Oh, no, do you know what? If I, if I squeal halfway through the, com- the, the conversation, it's probably because something really dramatic just happened. So we're talking to Imogen because uh, Wimbledon, the tennis tournament, has a problem with pigeons. Yeah, all over London there are pigeons, and they don't want... Pigeons flying in and interrupting during the tennis matches. So Wimbledon has come up with a, kind of an interesting solution to this. Is, isn't that right, Imogen? Yeah, absolutely. We um, fly Rufus the Harrisawk. He's a six-year-old male Harrisawk. Um, and we fly him here all throughout the year to prevent any pigeons from roosting and to be tempted to interrupt any, any matches. So what, you said a Harrishawk? A Harrisawk, yes. They're actually native to Central and North America. And... Um, Oh my goodness! I'm, um, he's just Nadal's just been knocked out as oh. I'm on the phone to you. So he's oh, just wow. been knocked out of Wimbledon. I'm really sorry to interrupt that. I just can't believe that just happened. Sorry. Yes. So back on track. I, I, we should say. If do you need a moment to deal with? No, not Rafa? at all. That's fine. No, no, no. That's actually fine. I've, I've come to terms with it. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Did Rufus have any role in Nadal losing? 
No, I don't think he did. Rufus didn't have any, didn't play any part in the loss. No, okay, definitely good. not. <laughs> so, Imogen, when you say you fly Rufus, what do you yep. what do you exactly mean by that? Um, well, I release Rufus on a daily basis. We start at 5 a.m. every morning, so nice and early in the morning. And um, we release him so he flies free, so he knows kind of his favorite hideouts and um, his favorite spots to find any sneaky pigeons that are trying to hide out. And so when, when uh, Rufus in- encounters a pigeon, what, is, what does he do to it? Um, Rufus's presence is enough as a deterrent effect. <laughs> Um, to to uh, when a pigeon sees Rufus coming towards him with his big yellow talons, and um, you know he's got that quite predatory look to him, and they have an innate sense of fight or flight. Really, um, they generally won't hang around long enough to realise that Rufus could quite easily polish them off for dinner. But um, the important part of my job is that I fly him, and he's at his optimum flying weight, which is one pound and six ounces. Because if I fly him and he's a lot over that, then he's not going to be very attentive and not be interested in coming back to me very easily. Whereas if I fly him and he's a lot under that one pound and six ounces, he will probably grab the first thing he sees. It could be a pigeon, it could be a duck, it could be anything. And he will quickly polish it off. And then again, <laughs> he won't be interested in coming back to me until he's hungry again. So so he he can't be too full or too hungry or... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you work... Every every bird has a different optimum flying weight. Um, Rufus's is one pound, six ounces. And you ascertain that when you're first training them. I, I mean, I know for a lot of people... Getting on the scale, it, it, you're scared because you don't want to see the weight. Is is, <laughs> is he apprehensive? Uh, no. Do you know what he's he's like? He's a, I think he's like a boxer in that sense. He just hops on, knows it's part of his job, and gets weighed, and then that's it. He, he's ready to go, ready to fly. Do you guys? Do you guys spend? You must spend a lot of time together, you and Rufus. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the you know driving down because we're not based in London. We we are based like two hours away, so. On a regular basis, I've got Rufus in the car with me, and I'll be chatting away to him. I don't often get a response, but um, I still chat away to him. So he's very familiar with our voices and definitely recognizes us. Well, what do, what does it sound like when he, he talks? Um, I mean, he, he has... Um, he has a very distinct, he makes a very distinct noise whenever he sees a dog, which is quite, um, it even frightens me sometimes. It's quite, um, it can be quite scary. Um, because you? He, 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 I, I, you know what, I really couldn't impersonate. It's very raucous, and uh, I couldn't really impersonate it. I would found probably quite funny. Um, but he does often do little squeaky noises, just um, when I'm talking to him or when he's sitting on my fist, and he kind of makes small little squeaky noises just to, um, almost just like a, yeah, I'm listening. Yeah, a little bit affectionate. That, that's how he talks? Yeah, yeah, he does. He just kind of, he makes some little squeaky noises. He's not the most vocal of birds. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, he definitely, he does do little squeaks every now and then. And you think, oh, you are listening to me. <laughs> Is there something, Imogen, that you'll be talking to him about? You know, like, oh, what a tough day at work. Or, oh, you know, this thing going on in my, in my, my personal life. Is there anything that elicits more squeaks from Rufus? Um, not, not particularly. Um, if I talk about food, probably, he'd be a lot more attentive. But um, otherwise, I think the majority of the time he probably falls asleep. <laughs> oh, that's rough. I know, it is. It really is. I think I pour out, pour out my heart to him and he just doesn't respond. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been great. Thanks so much for talking to us, Imogen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been really lovely. We got a note from Matt. Matt says he listens to How to Do Everything while avoiding giant potholes and cattle herds while riding his motorcycle. He says more. He says he does this through the mountains of northern Vietnam. He's still, there's another detail. His motorcycle his... is named Ben Franklin. 
Matt, these next 15 seconds are for you. Benjamin Franklin took air baths. We found things to do I bet Ben Franklin the motorcycle does the same thing. Weather, long may you run. Long may you run. Long may so this happened on uh, Fox Television's 24. Are you sure that this part is necessary? Unfortunately, yes, Mr. President. You know, the Secret Service doesn't check on the president's transponder signal very often, Jack. Honest. We can't afford to take that chance. It's got to come out. It's going to hurt, sir. Yikes! I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> You've done enough damage as a federal agent, Jack. Thank God you didn't become a surgeon. Now, uh, what you're hearing there, we're, we're learning that uh, in the world of 24, the president of the United States has a tracking device uh, under his skin. And what that does is if he's kidnapped or something, the Secret Service w- will know where he is using this device. I, I'm wondering, uh, as often with 24, is this, a, is this a real thing? On the line with us now is Dan Emmett. He's a retired Secret Service agent who served in the Secret Service details of Presidents Bush and Clinton. So, Dan, does does the president uh, really have a tracking device? Not to my knowledge. Uh, during my time on the presidential detail, nothing like that existed to my knowledge. Does it sound like something that, uh, given current technology, they would use on the president? Given current technology, I'm certain it could be done. Whether or not it is done, I just simply don't know. And remember, I operated uh, back in the Mesozoic era of the <laughs> Secret Service. We didn't even have Internet. So you know, I, I doubt seriously if that were the case in those days, but I cannot speak for what they do today in that regard. Have you seen the episode of 24 that we're talking about? I have not. Uh, I'm kind of a Jack fan. You know, I, I, I drift in and out and I catch it as I can, but I have not seen that one. I hope we haven't spoiled anything for you. <laughs> no. it's, you know, the thing that you have to keep in mind, though, about Hollywood is that it exists for pure entertainment. And in the case of the Secret Service, if you were to actually follow an agent on the presidential detail throughout his normal work day, average day, you would be so bored that you would <laughs> probably fall asleep. If you're in the White House on a given day and he's not going anywhere, you do what is known as a ring around the oval, meaning you just stand your post for eight hours and you go home. It's it's kind of like any other job. Well, I, I know that, you know, I think when most people are bored at work, they will check Facebook or BuzzFeed or something. You, you don't really, when you're in the Oval Office or in the White House, you can't really do that. No. What... How, what do you do? What is, your, what is the distraction that is acceptable for a Secret Service agent? Well, part of uh, what you're doing is, of course, remaining vigilant. What you do, really, you, you play a series of what-if games. That's really what you should be doing. If the house comes under attack now, what am I going to do? And each one has you know, different uh, actions at the objective, so to speak, depending on where you are, depending on the location of the president, and so on. You put yourself in the mindset of the assassin, and you say to yourself, if I were going to hit this location, if I were going to 
kill the president. How would I do it? And it's it's somewhat the military calls it red cell, where it's it's you're you're actually thinking about how you would do the attack. And so you you just do a lot of that. Secret Service agents think really on both sides of the fence because in order for you to be properly defend the White House and the president, you have to think about what is the bad guy thinking? How is he going to look at this? So, Dan, this you haven't been uh, on a Secret Service detail for 10 years, is that right? Correct. I retired from the Presidential Protective Division in 2004 after 21 years service. So do you still have moments when you uh, instinctively start talking into your wrist? <laughs> no, I, I do not. Um, but there are certain things that are embedded within my muscle memory and within my mentality that will never leave me. Um, every time I go somewhere, I'm constantly checking for someone following me. Um, I'm com- continuously situationally aware of where I am, what's going on, the people around me, and so on, whether I'm going out to dinner, whether I'm going to a movie. And those are things I think that after a certain point, those things become so ingrained you can never get rid of them, even if you wanted to. You're you're somewhat ruined for life, if you want to call it that. So when you go to a restaurant, are you aware of all the entrances and exits? When I walk into any, any building, the uh, first thing I do is scan the room. I look at the faces. I look at the entrances, the exits, um, and then I usually try and sit, as most cops do, most intelligence officers do, with my back to the wall uh, so that no one can come up behind me. And I, I don't do it consciously. I just, it's just one of those things that I do. It's not, uh, I don't believe it's being paranoid. I think it's just the result of decades of training and practice that uh, you're just always going to do those things. So have you ever, when you entered a, uh, entered a place and scanned the crowd, have you ever seen anything that struck you as suspicious and then acted on it? Not acted on it, no. But, you know, whenever you go to a, a restaurant, anytime you go to a bar and you walk in, and, and you guys should try this. Next time you go, wherever it is you go for your, you know, after hours or take your family to dinner, try that. You know, we, we actually, we can try it right now. Let's just, uh, let's bring up a little ambient sound. It'll put us there. Okay, now we're actually outside at Navy Pier, and if you, if you don't know what Navy Pier is, it's one of the biggest uh, tourist attractions in the city of Chicago. Okay, so we're, we're looking at people. What, what, should, what should we be looking for? Look at the faces. You will, from time to time, be a little uneasy about what you see, because some people look like they just don't quite belong. In other words, uh, they're not smiling, they're not having a good time. Maybe they're sitting alone. Maybe they're wearing a coat when it's hot weather. You just want to be aware of your surroundings, your situational awareness. There's a couple that's right here. Both have on black shirts and white hats. It's a it's a bad choice. I don't know that it's a suspicious choice. Okay, here comes a guy that looks like a, a sailor from the 1950s on a cell phone. All whites, that little white sailor cap. He is actually just a sailor oh. in uniform. It's not from another time. I see a woman in a shirt that says tennis. She's obviously a fan of tennis. If she's such a fan of tennis, why isn't she at Wimbledon? It's actually pretty expensive and it's hard to get a ticket. That person seems to be using some sort of wheeled chair instead of walking. I'm pretty sure that that was a baby. 
I see somebody, uh, a guy wearing sunglasses, with his sitting down with his, with his arms folded, and he's staring right at us. Do you see that guy? He really is. Do you think he is an actual Secret Service agent, and we are, in fact, the most suspicious people out here? Yes. Yep. He, I, he has his back to the tape, to the to the rest of the restaurant. He knows where his exits are. I think he's clearly marked us. There's a man dressed as a cowboy. Pretty sure that's also a baby. Dan Emmett's book is Within Arm's Length, a Secret Service agent's definitive inside account of protecting the president. That does it for this week's show. What we learned today, Mike? Well, I learned that when water is in its solid property, as ice, you can sneak it through the TSA. You don't even have to sneak it. You can just bring it through. Let me ask you this. They're saying no liquids. We learned that a solid is okay. Right. Can I bring it through as steam? If I could if I could heat it up and just have a cloud? No, you guys said no liquids. This is my steam cloud, and I intend to take it on the plane. And then you would somehow get it to turn into... A- to water so that you could drink it later? Yeah. I mean, it makes you wonder if you could put anything in a block of ice, if you could bring it through. Well, shampoo. Mm Mm-hmm. A caveman. Uh Uh-huh. Frozen in a block of ice. Yeah, because if you have an an animated caveman, they're going to get stopped every time because they they refuse to take their shoes off. And they have those clubs, those giant wooden clubs. Those are banned. I, l- I learned that uh, there's a there's a hawk, a predatory bird, uh, who works for Wimbledon. Rufus. You know, you get to see you get to see the ball boy work, but I the of all the employees at Wimbledon, Rufus the predatory hawk is that's who I want to see do his job. If the ball boys were replaced with ball hawks, that I would watch that. Yeah, you could train them. How to Do Everything is produced by Stephen Tobias with technical direction from Lorna White. We want to say farewell this week to Stephen Tobias. It's his last week on our show. Toby, we will miss you. And if you see Toby, you should know uh, he's had a number of nicknames in his short time with us. Uh, Tickles, Thunder Thighs. Thunder Tickles. Thunder Tickles. Grams. Grammy. uh, Cracker. Honeygrams. And he'll respond to any of those. Whoever has him next, if you lose him on the signs, put responds to Ticklegrams. GC. Graham crackers, crackers. We will miss you, Toby. Our intern this week is Seth Kelly. We'll miss you too, Seth. Godspeed, Seth. Our artisan residence is Justin Witty. If you have any questions, you can send them to us at howto at NPR. Org. Our website is howtodoeverything.org. Can I ask you one more? Um, uh, I, I, well, I'll just ask and you can tell me it's classified. Um, I, I have heard that in the Oval Office, there is a presidential seal that is actually a panic button, that the president, if there's something going on in there that uh, you know he, he's worried about, he can push down the seal, and it'll bring all of the uh, Secret Service agents there. Is that is that true? I'm not aware of it. Um, never heard of that before, no. Oh, that's a definitive answer. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of a presidential seal that could be pushed and the president uh, could use as a panic alarm. <laughs>
I think that's what you're asking. So, no, uh, I'm not aware of anything like that. Is there a different panic button that's not a seal? <laughs> I can't confirm or deny that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Mike Danforth. I'm Ian Chillog. This is NPR.